So last week, uh, what we saw was that both legalism in our heart, that legalistic spirit that we have, and license or our propensity to abuse grace and take advantage of it, they both have their error in the same root. Neither, neither legalism, the desire to follow rules and expect everybody else to, nor license the feeling that we don't have any rules, is actually about rules. It's not actually about rules and following them or not. The, the root of both of those errors in our heart is a distorted view of God's nature we looked at last week. In other words, the question is, at the root of that, is God a demanding God or is God a generous God? Does God ask us that we merit his grace or is his grace a gift? And both the legalist and the libertine get this wrong. The legalist accepts the false reality that God is somehow demanding and reacts to that misunderstanding or that distortion of who God is by working to earn what's been given. The legalist says, okay, God's a demanding God and I have to earn my merit with him. And so I will work hard at being, you know, polished up and I, you know, I won't drink and I won't chew and I won't go with girls who do and all of that stuff, right? And, you know, I'm going to be a good person and God's going to accept me. That's how the legalist heart responds to that. But the libertine or the one who is uh, rejecting or having taking license with God's grace just rejects God outright. And they just say, well, if God's going to be demanding, I don't want anything to do with that God. And that we saw this in the two sons, right? We saw this in the legalist elder son of the prodigal story and the prodigal son. And so the those that take license with God's grace basically say, I want God's stuff, but I don't want God. If God's going to be that way, I just want the advantages of his things without actually having God. And we do that in our lives, both, again, as non-believers and as believers. We have both of these errors can continue even as believers in us. In other words, we want God's food, we want his steak, we want his you know, wine, we want his clothes, we want God's house, we want his, the blessing of his health, we want to use the resources that he's given us in the world to serve ourselves, we're going to entertain ourselves, we're going to build fast cars, we're going to do great things. We, want, we love all of God's stuff, but we don't want anything to do with God. That's what... The libertine does. I'm going to live my life my way, taking advantage of God's things, but have nothing to do with God. I just wish he was dead and would leave me alone. Both of those problems can exist in non-believers' hearts. We have the religious lost who love rules and think you should follow rules and earn your way through life and and into God's heart. And then you have it in believers' hearts as well. That there are those believers that struggle with this root still of legalism and there are believers that struggle with the root of license. So the the surgical part of grace that we looked at is that it exposes the legalistic heart for what it is. When God's generous grace, when, when God's just remarkable grace and generosity is poured out on others, and we looked at the workers who came late to the field, right? And they worked for the field, got the same pay. When God's, the master's generous grace is poured out, our legalistic heart cringes inside of us and says, hey, wait a minute, this isn't fair. And so God's grace does surgery on us because when we see it happen, we are a little disturbed by that because that legalistic heart still remains. Or the younger brother who wasted his father's inheritance but was welcomed back as a full son. Our legalistic hearts revolt in our chest when we, when we see this happen in our own family with our own brothers and sisters, right? I think, I think Jesus used the example of a brother, of two brothers here on purpose because this is where the resentment starts right in our own family. 
Oh, how come my little brother gets this? When I grew up, I didn't have access to any of that stuff, right? You know, or we see a brother or a sister or a cousin in our family who is just making bad decisions and bad choices, and yet you feel like the family just has to continue to love them and continue to welcome them and pour out mercy and generosity upon them. As, as, as Christians, we should do that because that's what God's doing. But in our hearts, we think, why? You know, my marriage is good. My career is good. I've, I've been contributing to the family the whole time. How come it's, you know, the deadbeat that gets all the attention? And our legalistic hearts are still there in us, even as Christians. And we see it happen. And it's dangerous. And we think, isn't it dangerous to be so free with grace? Won't won't these people simply abuse the Father's generosity? Surely the law has to stand for something. And we have to admit that the elder brother's argument in that story makes sense to us. And we resonate with at least his confusion over what the Father has done for the younger son even if we don't necessarily share his resentment. God's grace might be very free, but we wonder, is it completely free? Isn't something owed? Won't it be abused? People won't behave if God displays grace like this. And so we wonder, is God's grace really that overwhelming and that radical? And the Apostle Paul's rhetorical question in Romans 6.1 anticipates this question in our heart. And as I left off last week, when you start to realize that God's grace is that overwhelming and that radical and that generous, then you're just starting to get to the right place of understanding how gracious God really is. You're, you're starting to see it when your heart starts to rebel. Because Paul sees this rebellion happening as he's teaching the gospel in Romans 6.1. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. So he's anticipating their questions. It's like, so, so I can just keep on sinning. I can just keep on living however I want. Because God's grace is just going to abound all the more wherever my disobedience is. Paul says, no, that's not how God's grace works. He says, it's more subtle than that. There's more to God's grace than that. God's grace isn't done doing its surgery. God's grace isn't done doing its work if you stop there. And so that's what we're trying to understand this morning is what is God's grace doing? It's exposing the legalist heart, but what is it doing in the libertine's heart? What is it doing in the heart of those who take license with it? And Scripture teaches us that God's radical and outrageous grace actually is the answer to both of these wrong responses of our hearts. The cure for both legalism and license is understanding just how good the good news of the gospel is and then responding to that good news. Legalism needs that surgical effect of God's grace to provide the shock therapy to reveal that stubborn root of self-reliance and the insistence that someone, we, must merit more of God's generosities than others. And license needs the sanctifying effect of God's outlandish grace to draw us closer and closer towards God's love and see our lives in a proper orbit, naturally orbiting a God who loves us that outrageously that he would forgive our sins through no merit of our own. And so in both cases, what we mistakenly viewed as external regulation of the law or obedience or demand on our behavior because God demands things from us, that's the mistake. What happens through God's grace is that it gets transformed properly and becomes an internal disposition of our heart. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let me just pray. Father God, you teach this many ways. And I just pray that as, as, as we're sitting here in, in front of your word, and before your word, and by your Holy Spirit, that, that whatever the angle is that you want to take through the different teachings of Jesus or through Paul, whatever it is that a person needs this morning that you would do, that we would see what this 
grace is accomplishing and how your grace is miraculous. It's not just grace like I'm being gracious to a neighbor. It's miraculous grace that transforms us, that saves us. And it's doing its work in our hearts. And so, Lord, I just, I just pray that the Holy Spirit, by your word, would let us see that this morning. In Christ's name, amen. And so there's two things that God's grace does. And this generosity of God in forgiving us of our sins and of pouring out his blessing upon us through Christ Jesus. It does two things for the lawless and those that would replace legalism with license. Okay, Because the, the natural response against legalism, we think, is, oh, well, and then I'm going to reject the law, and if God doesn't merit all these things, or I don't have to jump through all these hoops for God, and he doesn't expect me to, you know you know, pray five times a day, and he doesn't expect me to keep a journal, he doesn't expect me to do these things, and I, and, and I have his grace regardless of that through Jesus Christ, that I'm just going to reject the law and I'm going to go the other direction into license. But, but the answer is not license, the answer is still grace. Grace is the answer, and grace does two things for our hearts. The first thing is, is that we become positionally sanctified, and that's why I call this sanctifying grace. We become positionally sanctified or justified or qualified. And i got to explain what I mean by sanctified. Sanctified means like being made clean, being perfected. Um, um, God is transforming us to become more and more like the image of Christ Jesus. And so we become, when, when God's grace first intersects our life, when we first repent and we agree with God and we say, God, we need you, and his grace comes into us miraculously, and by his grace we're forgiven and we are united with Christ Jesus then we become positionally sanctified, or what the Bible would call justified. In other words, we can have the Holy Spirit within us because God counts us as righteous. Now, we're not righteous, but God counts us as righteous. So that's the first thing that God's generous grace does. He says, I'm going to count you as righteous even though you're not. And so positionally, before God, he treats us like we're sanctified. He treats us like we're washed. He treats us as though we're clean. He treats us as though we're pure even though we're not. And we see this in the parable of the prodigal son again, just to reflect on that. When the son comes home, the father puts a, a, the, the best robe on him, he puts a ring on his finger, he puts sandals on his feet, and he kills the fatted calf, and he has a celebration for his son, right? And in the ancient Near East, the ceremonial robe, or the best robe, was a mark of honor. And so when a king sought to give honor to a visiting dignitary, he would present him with a costly robe. And so the father's command in the parable basically carries on this implication is, this is an honored guest, my son has returned, and he gets the best robe. And then he puts a ring on him, probably a signet ring, like a family ring. He says he's part of the family. He has authority. I give him the ring of authority because he's now returned and he's positionally in the same position he was when he left. He's just as much my son now as when he rebelled and when he left. He came back and asked to be made a servant, a person of no authority, and the father makes him a person of authority. And then he puts sandals on his feet. And if you ever travel to the Middle East or to continental Africa, you'll notice how often people are barefoot, even today especially field workers. I mean, it's a, it's a temperate climate, and so we can talk about the climate temperately, but we can also talk about the climate politically in the first century. Shoes or sandals at this time were mainly worn by free people. They weren't worn by servants or slaves or household people. And so the youngest son had appeared to his father's house after a long journey in bare feet because he didn't have any shoes on. He didn't have any sandals. And the father says, put sandals on my son's feet. He comes back to me looking like a slave. He's not a slave. He's a son, right? And so he says, put shoes on his feet. And this is what God's grace does to us instantly without any delay. 
Right? No matter what life you've come from, no matter what you have done, no matter how far a journey you've run away from God, no matter what your rebellion was, no matter what you were doing in that situation, when you return to God in repentance and say, I just want to be part of your household, God, He does this immediately. You are immediately sanctified. You are immediately purified. You are immediately counted as justified. You're qualified to be in the household of God. Whatever animosity or hatred was there before, God puts behind him. He forgives your sins. He puts them as far as the east is from the west. When we come to our senses and we repent of our rebellion and we trust what Jesus has done is enough, then God says, you're justified. Instantly, it's done. Just like the sun coming home. But God's sanctifying grace doesn't stop there because we know that we're still not righteous, right? We still struggle in our flesh. We're still not pure. God's counting us as pure. He's counting us as justified, but we're still not. It doesn't stop there. God's grace keeps going. It's absolutely true that God loves us no matter who we are or where we are. But it's even more accurate to say that God loves us despite of who we are or where we are. And his love will not leave us in that condition. His love and his grace will not leave us unchanged. He's not only going to count us as sanctified, he wants to sanctify us. And there's power to God's grace that does more than just justify us. It begins to transform us, and that's its progressive sanctifying power. And that's the second thing that God's grace is meant to do. And this is how God's grace is the cure for those, even Christians, who think, I'm just going to, I just want God's stuff. I just want his forgiveness. I just want his justification. I just want heaven someday. I just want all the stuff God wants to give me, but I don't want God. I want to live my own life. I want to live my life. I like God's stuff, but I don't want God. But God's grace won't leave you there. This is the power of God's grace and why it's the cure to that kind of heart. Although we think of lawlessness or license and abusing God's grace as the opposite error of legalism, they're actually equal errors. Right? They, they both want something from God and they either think they have to earn it or they think that they don't have to earn it, but God's going to give it to them anyway. And so the Pharisees, who were essentially members of a first century holiness movement, they struggled with this idea in the life of Jesus himself. They, they struggled with this reality of this grace of God and the gospel that Jesus was preaching about who the Father was and the kinds of people that the Father would welcome. Jesus was never accused of being a legalist. I mean, just the opposite, right? The Pharisees could understand John the Baptist. John the Baptist seemed to be part of the same kind of holiness movement that the, that the Pharisees were, right? They could get behind this guy. He was, he was wearing sacks and he was eating bugs and he was living in the desert and he was strict and he was an adherent and he loved the law and he prophesied. And so he seemed to be kind of where the Pharisees were coming from. They could get behind him. But then Jesus came along afterwards and Jesus made very few positive statements about the law. Right? He ignored the Sabbath. He did stuff on the Sabbath that just frustrated the Pharisees and the scribes all the time. He spoke in violent terms towards these people who felt they were doing the will of God. They thought they were like the cream of the crop. And, and Jesus keeps, you know, basically in, um, pulling the rug out from underneath them. And then he's, on top of that, he goes to dinner parties with sinners and he's accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. And he didn't baptize anybody and his disciples were pretty undisciplined. The criticism of the Pharisees was that Jesus was pretty loose with his approach to the law. But, but the grace that Jesus was teaching had a purpose to it. The gospel that Jesus teaches, does it really dismantle the law? 
Has what Jesus done in his death and resurrection and, and even portrayed for us as an example in his life lead us to conclude, as some people did, that our response to grace can be disobedience towards God? And it's not at all. Because Jesus, who was accused of being light on the law, he actually says things like this in Matthew 5. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Or he says things like, You've heard it said of old to those of old that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone that is angry at his brother will be liable for the judgment. And so Jesus is not light on the law. And so the answer to legalism or to the law of God or to the expectations of God or to the standards of the orderly life of God that he would have us live is not license. It's not rejecting the law because Jesus says the law is actually stricter than you think. He wants the Pharisee to see, he wants the Pharisees to see that the law is pointing them towards an even higher standard than they can manage. That you have to be more righteous than them to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus loves the law because the law explains how we're meant to love properly. Never be angry or insulting. Never lust after another woman improperly. And all the rest of the things that the law teaches, the law is actually grace. The law is actually pointing us as a tutor towards the type of response that we are to have towards God. But we cannot uphold God's perfect law, not because of a weakness in the law, but because of a weakness in our flesh. And so then we need, and this is again where God's miraculous, sanctifying grace comes in. We need God's grace in order to fulfill the law in Christ. And here's how Jesus explains that works. The elder son thought that loving the father was mainly about working or doing. The elder son today would quote the great commandment, does God not say that we are to teach his disciples to obey all that Jesus commanded? In Matthew 28, 20, that's what the elder brother would say. Because Jesus said it. Jesus said, teach his disciples to observe all that Jesus commanded. Do everything that Jesus commanded. Or he would say, doesn't Paul say, by no means should we continue to sin? In Romans 6, 15. And doesn't Paul say the law is holy and good, and I agree with the law that it is good? In Romans 7. Doesn't Jesus say to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments? Right, So the legalistic heart, the Pharisee argument is starting to come out again. Isn't these, aren't these things that Jesus says? You see, keeping the law, keeping the commandments, obedience is the condition of God's favor. His generosity and his grace and his love depends on your obedience. Except that John 14, 15 doesn't actually say that. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So Jesus is saying the keeping of the commandments is the reflection of the fact that you already love him, that God's grace is already upon that, that you already have faith, that you already have repented, that you already agree with God and you love God and you, and you, have, got, you have an affection for God and you treasure God in Christ Jesus. And then if you have that treasure, you will keep my commandments. You see, it's not an external demand that you do to prove your love. It's an internal desire that comes from your love. It's the other way around. That's how God's grace works. And while Paul is affirming the law is holy and good, he's also acknowledging that he has no power to keep it in himself apart from the grace of God. He says in chapter 7, the very commandment that, was, that promised life proved death to me. And I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, my natural me. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And so you see, 
how God's grace turns everything upside down. Our response to God's grace is that we acknowledge that there's nothing good in us and we cannot keep the law. That we need an external, or we need, an, we need another power in order to be able to do it. Doing good and following the law and obeying the commandments can't be the cause of our love of God because we can't do them. And Paul says we have no desire to do them until we're first loved by God. And that love for God comes to us through this audacious and generous and outlandish grace of God that we see provided in His Son, Jesus Christ. The love of the Father is basically shocked to life. Our love for the Father is shocked to life. It's kick-started. It comes from the display of His grace to us. And from that love, we would say sanctification flows, or we would say obedience flows. And so we need to see that it's God's grace that surgically exposes the legalist heart and it kickstarts the desire to obey in the, light, in, the, in, the, in the person who would take license with his grace. And I'll just, I'll just show it to you a couple of different ways because I know it's hard to get your head around that this is what's being taught, but this is what's going on. You look again at the younger son in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, the younger brother. The outlandish grace of the father has clothed him in the best robe, has put on the signet ring on his finger, has put sandals on his feet, has killed the fatted calf, has begun the celebration in his honor. That is what the father has done for the son. And Jesus knows what the listeners to the parable will assume at the end of the story, after the story is all over, after such a welcome, the story does not the, the story doesn't continue on, but, but you're left to imagine how does the story continue? What does the younger son do after this display of grace? You can imagine it, right? Does he run away again? Does he insult and dishonor his father? Does he just lay around the house and say, gee, thanks, Dad, let's have another party next week? No. Like You instinctively know what the response of that son is, is in response to the lavish display of the father's grace. That son is naturally, out of an internal desire, going to rekindle his relationship with his father. He's going to manage the household. He's going to work in the fields. He's going to do whatever it is that pleases the father because he's just overwhelmed by the grace of the father. That is the lesson that's being taught there. That the response of the elder son has been legalism. It's been, I've got to follow all these rules and you never give me anything. And he says, no, everything I have is yours. And look, your son has returned and we've killed the fatty calf and he was dead but now he's alive. And it's important that he says that because the son was dead in the spirit. He had no love for the father. He could not love his father because he was dead. Dead things can't love. But now he's alive and now that he's alive, he can love and he can be part of the household again. And so... He's going to adopt this new internal disposition out of his heart, out of love for the Father, as a response to the grace of the Father. This life change is only possible because of God's grace. And then Jesus teaches the lesson again when he's dining at the house of Simon the Pharisee. Again, we're just going to tackle it two more ways, and then you'll, I think you'll see how, God's, how, how Jesus is teaching this. Jesus gets invited to the house of Simon the Pharisee. He didn't just eat with sinners, and it's important to keep this in mind. He ate with tax collectors and sinners, but Jesus also ate with Pharisees and scribes, and he, you know, he, he taught them as well. He's not exclusive to any one demographic in society. But basically what happens is Jesus comes in, and they're reclining at the table, and in the Middle East at the time, you would lay down kind of on one, you would, you'd lay down on the floor. The tables were low, and you lay down. Your feet are kind of out behind you. You're leaning on one elbow, and you're eating uh, with your right hand. You're leaning on your left shoulder. And he, so he's doing that. He's reclining at the table. He's got his pillows. His feet are out back. And this woman of the street comes in. You're maybe now starting to remember the story. 
And there's no illusion, you know, everybody knows who this woman is. The Pharisee knows who this woman is. She's living on the street and she's, you know, one of those women of the street. And she comes in and she's crying and anointing Jesus' feet and crying so much that she's wiping off his feet with his hair to dry off his feet. And she's there and the Pharisee is disgusted that if Jesus was a prophet, he would know who this woman was and what kind of woman she was. And he would not allow this, right? This is what's going on. And this Pharisee is disgusted by this. But Jesus' response to this is completely unexpected to the Pharisee. Simon, he says, I came into your house, but you didn't wash my feet. You didn't kiss me. You didn't anoint my head with oil. You have not grasped at all clearly the outlandish nature of my grace in forgiving you. You don't understand who I am and what I represent. You don't understand the good news of my arrival and my death and resurrection that's coming. You don't understand who I am. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't kiss me. You didn't anoint me. You have no understanding of what I mean to you what God means to you, the nature of my grace in forgiving you. And so because you don't understand that grace, you have almost no love for me. But this woman, since the moment she came in here, has been anointing my feet, has been crying, has been washing me. And then he tells a little story. He says, imagine somebody owed somebody $10 and somebody owed, and they owed the person $10,000. If he forgives the debt of the one who owes $10, or he forgives the debt of the one who owes $10,000, which one loves him more? And Simon says, well, the guy who's been forgiven $10,000, he really loves him. He says, exactly. He says, when you understand how outlandish the grace of the Father is to forgive your sins for what you have done, then your response should be overwhelming love in response to that grace, just as this woman had. You see, Jesus just keeps teaching the same thing. That, that we're not meriting anything. We're not working for God's generosity. It's God's generosity that is causing the response of our love to follow Him in affection because of what He's done. So if you're looking at your own life and you're wondering, where is the sanctifying power of God? I love God. I repented. I gave my life to God. But where is that power, that desire to follow God? Why do I still have these besetting sins? Why do I still behave selfishly? Why do I still have these broken parts of my life that I don't seem to have any power in? The answer is not to grit your teeth and work harder on pleasing God by obeying some commandment there. The answer that Jesus is giving you is, love me more. Understand how outrageous and generous the grace of the Father is to forgive you all of that. And when you really understand that generosity, then the response will come. It's not a whole bunch of laws and rules that we follow. It's a response from the heart of comprehending and apprehending what God has done for us. That is the power of sanctifying grace. Don't look harder at the law. Look more deeply at the grace of God in that He's already forgiven your sins and justified you in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Deepen your understanding and grasp the miraculous generosity of God to awaken that love for Him. And then He compels our heart to follow His law. Paul says later in Romans, love is the fulfilling of the law. And God's love is demonstrated through His grace to save us by His Son and then draw us into following his law of love. And Jesus teaches this, I said two more ways, and this is the last one. Jesus teaches this again yet another way. Remember how I said it was important the Father said that the Son was dead and now he's alive? Because Jesus teaches this another way. He teaches it to Nicodemus in John 3. 
Okay, so Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and the Pharisees all hate Jesus, but some of the Pharisees are starting to cotton on to what Jesus is is talking about, and Nicodemus is one of them. And he goes in the dead of night, because he doesn't want to be seen, in John chapter 3, this Pharisee, Nicodemus, goes in the dead of night to meet Jesus, and he says, we know you are from God. Because nobody else can do the stuff you're doing. so, So Nicodemus is saying, we know, we're getting the idea now who you are. We know you really are who you say you are. And then instantly, in response to that, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is confused at that point, and he asks if he's supposed to get back inside his mother's womb or something. And Jesus says, no, it's nothing like that. What are you, weird? Um, he says, no, he says, what is born of the flesh is flesh. Right? Meaning exactly what Paul is going to say later in Romans, right? Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh. And so Jesus here says to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Flesh is flesh, and you're born into flesh. And and, and there's nothing good in it. And you can't love God there. You have no power on your own to love God. No one is righteous, no one. No one seeks God. Not one person seeks God in their flesh. But then Jesus goes on. He says, but you need to be born of the Spirit. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. In other words, what's Jesus teaching here? He says, you need to experience that audacious generosity of God's grace to forgive you and welcome you back into his family so that your dead spirit can come alive. You're born in your flesh and your spirit is dead. That's how we're all born. And dead things can't respond. They can't do anything. Right? When Lazarus is in the tomb, can he get himself out of the tomb? Jesus has to say, Lazarus, come forth. Because dead things can't respond. And so Jesus is teaching the same thing a different way here. He's saying you have to experience this incredible grace of God that he would send his son and that you could have your sins forgiven. And when that miraculous grace intersects your life and you respond to that grace of God, then your spirit comes alive. My son who is dead is now alive. And when you're alive in the spirit, then you can love God. Then you have the power to follow the law of love. Then you can please God, but you can't please God before that. And you'll have no power. You'll have no transforming, sanctifying power in your life before that. And the power to transform and the power to be sanctified comes from the love that we have of God. And so that's why back when I was doing the discipleship series and we did that that parable on the treasure in the field and we talked a lot about treasuring Jesus and cherishing Jesus and making him the treasure of your life and God is a more perfect treasure than anything else that we could have. As we disciples treasure Jesus, they love God. As you love God, then you get the power for that transformed life to leave the old life behind and live by the Spirit in God. And so God's grace starts by bringing our dead spirit back to life so that we no longer live in the flesh, but we can now live in the spirit. God's outlandish grace in rescuing us from our sin by no merit of our own doesn't inspire us to abuse that grace. And this is why it's the answer to that licensed heart or that libertine heart, because God's love, when we comprehend it like that, does not inspire us to abuse that grace. It inspires us to live up to it and be a trophy of that grace we'll have the assurance that we're justified and we'll be drawn more and more into obedience of his commandments the more and more we recognize and comprehend the grace that God has shown towards us in loving us and forgiving our sins. So we've looked at it from two or three different angles, right? We've looked at it from two or three different parables. We looked at it from two or three different teachings of Jesus. 
But I just want to, I just, I just hope we see God's grace for what it is as we leave this little two-part series. And next week we're going to start the overview of experiencing God. That wherever you're at right now with God today, I don't know. But understand that if, if you've got that sense that you have to, you know, earn something or get something from God, understand that His grace is free. It's a generous gift. There's nothing you need to do to merit. Everything that God has is yours. Simply repent and turn to Him and accept the grace of His gift of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Or if you're sitting here and you're saying, I, I love God. I want to love God. I want to have an assurance that I go to heaven. I, I want to be part of this Christian family, but I really love all of God's stuff maybe more than I love God. Right? I love what I can do for myself. I love the things that he's given me in the world. And I, I, I love my own life. And I love, I love the blessing that God has on me a little bit more than I actually love God. And I'm, and I'm really struggling with how do I live as a Christian and how do I live with assurance that I'm a Christian, that, that I see the transformation in my life that I'm hoping for. The answer is still God's grace. Go back to God's grace and understand what you've been forgiven. Understand the debt that's been paid. Understand the love that God has for you no matter where you are and that he doesn't want to leave you there. And as you comprehend that love in that generous grace of God, that's where the power comes from to transform. Both the legalist heart and the licensed heart both respond to the grace of God by saying, I want to follow that. I want to love that God. I want to do the things that please that God. I want to live the life that that is worthy of that that's been poured out for me. And so the answer to our hearts, the answer to our struggles, is always God's grace. He initiates. He's done it. Just, Just grasp that and comprehend that and see the change that can take place. Let's pray.